If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 14. As we just continue to go through this book, uh, hopefully it's a, a rich blessing to you. There's much that God has told us about the future, what is to come, and, and we need to take that in. We live every day in light a, of a theology you live every day in light of a theology, even an eschatology. You may not think you do, but you do. And we need to have a well-informed biblical theology to live by. Revelation chapter 14, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give Him glory, because of the, the hour of His judgment is come, has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and who receive the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labor, for their deeds follow with them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for this passage. We thank You, Lord, for teaching us the things that are to come. Help us to think, helping us to think rightly about the future. Lord, we, we act upon what we know and Lord, help us to know these things. Help us to understand uh, so that we can act appropriately in this present day. I pray that you would allow us to, to understand and then apply these things to our own lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the moment that Adam and Eve took the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and rebelled against God, they died spiritually. But the Lord allowed them to live physically, in physical bodies. Now, they did not deserve that. And God, God's mercy burst, and His grace burst onto the scene. They should have been cast into hell, into eternal punishment. It's not just death that they deserved, but they deserved Eternal punishment in hell forever. And God was gracious. He did not deal with them according to their sins or the way their sins deserve, but He dealt with them based upon His 
gracious nature. And there's a difference. Man deserved sinful punishment, the punishment of sin. And yet he acted upon his own nature. And we would have just, it would have been a knee-jerk reaction and anger would have burst onto the scene and, and we would have had no grace. But God is gracious. He is a gracious God. That is part of His nature. It's not that He just does gracious things from time to time, but that He, His nature is gracious. He is a gracious God. Lamentation chapter 3 and verse 22 says, Through the Lord's mercy we are not consumed. It's His mercy and His grace that we're not consumed. And He goes on to say, Because His compassion fails not. We serve a gracious God. That is an important thing for us to know. Now, if you notice, the title of my sermon is The Final Hour of God's Grace. But it could very easily be God's gracious warning. Because grace warns. It's a gracious thing to to warn somebody of danger to come. And we see that as an attribute or characteristic of God in His grace. He warns us. And He's done that throughout the ages. We've seen that. It's a gracious thing to be warned of danger. There's a a picture that's floating around the internet uh, these days of this man and he's cutting the grass. Maybe you've seen it. I don't know. And uh, behind him is his privacy fence. He's got his own little world and seems like he's in his own little world. But about a hundred yards down the road is a huge tornado coming. And he is kind of oblivious to this, uh, to this tornado. And, and he needs to be warned. It's a gracious thing to peck him on the shoulder and say, Hey, buddy, there's a tornado coming. Now, the caption shows that, that he was warned, that he uh, was aware of the tornado. He said he was aware of the tornado. Uh, he said he was keeping an eye on it. Now, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you do that when you're cutting your grass. Priorities there, but uh, grace informs. When you see danger, you, you warn people. You, you inform them of that danger. We've all been in the situations. I, I've told you the story. When we were at the Grand Canyon, we have kids, and um, you know our kids were kind of running around. We're at the edge of this thing, and it's not real secure. But I'm taking pictures and just looking. And Ruthie's, she's uh, taking the video camera, and she's got pictures. And we hear a little boy, "Don't, don't climb on those rocks." And we look, and little Carlton, about 18 months, maybe two years old, and he's climbing. I mean, he had just fallen right into the canyon, but he was warned. It was a gracious act. Somebody warn us. Somebody warn us. And that's the way God is. And in this passage, we see a warning of a gracious God. We see the heart of gracious God in his dealing with unrepentant man. And that's the image of God that we need. He is a gracious God. But he is dealing with unrepentant sinners. And even in the tribulation period, God's gracious warning, he graciously warns unbelievers to turn from their sinfulness and to worship the true and living God. That's what man needs. You can see that on the screen. And the question this passage answers for us is that what is this gracious warning? He gives these tribulation saints a gracious warning here. What is that gracious warning? And then how does that apply to us? Because it does. It relates to us in some way. And we need to keep those things in mind. And this passage is very easily divided into three sections. 
It's amazing how the Word of God does that. Now, you, I know you think it's me every time he has three points. and it, No, the, God gives three angels here. Now, this time it's not me, it's, it's the text. There's three angels here, and we're just going to go through the, all three angels and, and see the three points. The, the three messages of grace that God gives the earth at this point. Now, let's look at the first one, the first angel. This is the angel, really, of opportunity. In verse 6, then I saw another angel in the mid-heaven. Now, we've seen several angels throughout the book of Revelation, and this is another one. This is another vision, and it's in mid-heaven. It's not down close to the earth where the birds fly. It's in mid-heaven, like where the, up where the sun would be. It would be the upper atmosphere where he would be able to be seen by everybody. It would be the apex of the sun, most visibility of the earth. And he has a message, having an eternal gospel. Now, this is the same gospel. It's nothing new now, this is the gospel of the new covenant, which is in Jesus' blood. This is the gospel of the Old Testament that was looking forward to Christ, and the gospel of the New Testament looking back at Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, work of Christ on the cross. It's the same gospel that we preach today. But this is an eternal gospel in that it is the means to eternal life. This is, this is the only way. This is through this gospel, through this message, is eternal life. And it's for those who live on the earth. The earth dwellers. Remember, we just keep seeing that term as it keeps coming up. The earth dwellers, those unsaved, those undeserving. And that's exactly where God's grace goes to. He is gracious to those earth dwellers, those unbelievers. And it's comprehensive to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. It's to everyone. And he says with a loud voice so that everyone can hear. What we see here is that no one can claim that, that God is indifferent toward the unbeliever. We see that, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is not some cold, indifferent, dictating God up there. We need to let that saturate our minds. He is a gracious God. He gives uh, an opportunity, even in the tribulation, to the tribulation saints, an opportunity to for forgiveness, to turn for repentance. Now, he gives them three commands in this first angel does. There's three things that these people need to do. This angel's declaring this. He's giving this message with a loud voice so that everyone could hear. And there's three commands. There's three imperatives. You'd understand what an imperative is, and it's, it's something that's important, and it's something that's commanded, something that needs to happen. Here's what you need to do. There's a sense of urgency there. The first one, look at this in verse 7, he says, I'll start with a loud voice, fear God. That's the core of man's problem. We don't fear God. Fear God, he says. Uh, he, just in one word, he sums up man's whole the problem with man, Paul said that uh, in Romans chapter 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the bottom line. We don't value God. We don't reverence God. There's no fear of God. And it's so he's confronting man's problems right away. And you see on the screen there's three passages there. Psalm chapter 111 
It says, fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 23 says, live in the fear of God. It's a way of life that we fear God. Matthew chapter 10, of course, Christ said, fear him who is able to, what? Kill both the soul and the body. We fear God. We fear God. I like what uh, John MacArthur had to say about this. He said, to fear God is to live in the reality of His holiness. To live in that reality. That He is holy. It goes on to say, His, His sovereignty and His judgment of sin. Live in light of His judgment of sin. He says, it is to love God, respect Him, reverence Him, adore Him, hold Him in awe, and worship Him. And that can only be done by loving His Son, Jesus Christ. How do we love God? How do we fear God? We accept His Son. We accept His uh, means of salvation. Number two, the second command says, Fear God. This is what they need. And number two, give Him glory. Another imperative. Give Him glory. Again, the core of man is that a pride issue. We do not give God the glory. We do not give Him the glory. And it's the, the problem with man. In fact, Romans chapter 1, if you turn over there, Romans chapter 1 verse 21, uh, Paul lays this out in, in the whole book of Romans. Uh, really, he says this, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They knew God. They see the evidence of God all around them. It's because of creation um, and they knew that, but they suppressed that truth. They did not honor God. They did not give Him glory. They did not give Him thanks. And that's the core problem of man. Again, again, right to the core, the issue of man is we do not give glory to God. And that feeds into our pride. But the reality is, folks, is that we are created beings. We are dependent on Him. Dependent beings. Every act of the Christian is to be done for the glory of God. We are to glorify God. Now, there's a sense of urgency. Look back at the text in Revelation. It says, give glory to God because the hour of judgment has come. There's an urgency. God is getting ready to pour out His wrath upon the earth. It's going to be upon this stubborn, unrepentant world. He says, give glory to God. And the third command, he says, to worship Him. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. It's to worship Him. The word worship there is to bow down low, to prostrate oneself before God. And this is not talking about the act of worship per se. This is talking about your devotion to God. God is seeking worshipers. Hebrews chapter 12, we see that our whole life is to be a worship to God, a worship of service given over to God. It is to highly value God and put Him above everything else, essentially. That's what it is. So the angel is saying with this loud voice that uh, you are to no longer fear and reverence and, and worship Satan and the Antichrist, because this is the context of the tribulation. No longer do that, but you are to turn and you are to worship God. You are to worship God and God alone. Now, these three elements of fearing God, giving Him glory, and worshiping God are essentially the same thing. There's three elements of essentially the same thing. What is it? It's just to, to put God at the center of life. That's what it is to be a Christian. 
That's what it is. To have Christ at the center, God at the center of everything. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's a radical transformation when someone becomes a Christian. I like what Dave read, and he is absolutely right. You should be able to see a a, a difference. There is a, a marked difference of conversion. You should be able to see that. Jonathan Edwards is exactly right on that. And this is a radical transformation. There's what is happening here. Let's think about this a little bit. There's a deconstruction of one's life. One's taking out old bricks from the building and putting in new bricks, new thoughts, and building a new life. You say, well, how does that look? What does that look like? What is that? It's really a change of direction. That's, that's what we would see. A change of direction in one's life. It's a, it's a change of one's motivation and motives in life. Now, we do a lot of the same things that the, that the unbeliever does. We really do. And you compare the two. Oh, yeah, he gets up, he goes to work, and he, uh, he plays ball with his family. He, he uh, does this, he does that. A lot of the same things. But what motivates them? And we find that it's it's many of the same things, but it's motivated. The Christian now is motivated out of love. Love for God above everything else. Love for mankind. It's love. It's a different, it's a whole different shift. It may not look like it on the outside. You may not part your hair in a different way, but you're going to be, there is going to be a shift. There's going to be a change. Change in the direction, change in the motivation of your life. It is going to be a new life. Now, it might take some time. It might be a slow process, but it will be there. Now, I had a meeting, had a meeting this week with a couple of guys. They just called and said, hey, we're going to stop by. A couple of guys from Tudor's Biscuit World. And they have informed me they bought this property here and just beside us here and they're we were talking about some things and just wanted to inform us. And it sounds like they're going to be great neighbors. I told them I'm going to be the fattest pastor in Beckley now. And what they have to do, I said, what, what's taking so long? And, and what they have to do is they have to deconstruct that whole area there. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to, to put, it wasn't uh, there to, to put a, a restaurant on. They have to take everything apart and, and then put a new building up. It's going to take a time. It's going to take time, but they say they're going to they're going to do it pretty quick. And and I tell them I'm hungry. So, but that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. And there's three commands that this angel says you need to do this: stop worshiping Satan. Ultimately, that's what they're doing: worshiping Satan and and do these things. You say, well, why? Why do these things? Well, he answers that in verse eight. And this is the second angel, the second angel. And it's almost as though that second angel just interrupts, interrupts the first angel because there's a lack of response to rejecting that first angel anyway. But here, here's what he says, the second angel, another one, followed him, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made the, made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So this second angel interrupts. Now, to understand this, we have to understand a little bit about Babylon the Great. What is that a reference to? 
Well, it's probably a reference to this worldwide political, economical, and uh, or economic and religious system that the Antichrist has set up. It's called Babylon. It's a reference to the Old Testament, and you can see its roots in Genesis chapter ten. So, once you turn over there, Genesis chapter ten, and, and we'll see why is it called the, the Babylon. Now, a lot of people they have really misinterpreted this whole Babylon in in the book of Revelation. But it's just simply simply talking about this one world government system that the Antichrist has set up. But it's not only a political system or an economic system, it is a religious worshipping system. Worshipping Satan. Genesis chapter 10 and verse 8. You see this one man. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. Now that's the man. And he became a mighty one on the earth. Now, the, the, notice that, that same phraseology, on the earth. He's tied to this earth. Uh, this is not the good context. And it says, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it was said, like, the, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, this is not before the Lord in a good way. This is a mighty hunter in almost competition with the Lord. Man, he's a child. he's a mighty man. In fact, look what he does in verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom, he has his own kingdom, man. You're going to follow me in one of the first cities. In fact, the first city that was built was Babel. Babel. Now, there's some other cities there. Look over at chapter 11. And here's the foundation of Babel, what Babel was built on, the thinking. Now, the whole earth was used... One used the same language and the same words. And it came about uh, as a journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come and let us build bricks and burn them thoroughly. And this is something permanent, something that we'll want to last. And they used bricks for the stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city. Now, God had already told them, uh, go and scatter, fill the earth. And they said, no, we want to be here. And this one man, they following this one man who is building this city, who has the vision. And he says, let's uh, build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach to heaven. And this is not getting closer to God here. This is a worship center. Worship center and, and let us make a what? A name for ourselves. That's exactly what Nimrod wanted. He was a, an attention getter. He wanted power. He, he was rejecting God and establishing his own religion here. And everyone was together. There was unity. And so God came down. And you know the story. God scattered them. And that seed, that, that one little thought really of a worship center, everybody together. And that right there was a thought, really a thought from Satan. And we see as God scattered them, that same thought of idolatrous worship, this immorality, and with, uh, including its immorality spread really through all the nations. And God confused the language. And here's the warning. So this reference then to Babylon the Great, it's just like this Antichrist empire. 
The same kind of mentality. Just worship center. We're all together. That's exactly, remember, that's exactly what Satan wants. The whole world unified together, worshiping Him. He wants the attention. He will use man. He'll use mankind, but He wants the attention. And here's the warning. He says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Warning. Warning, there's judgment here. Judgment. There's doom. This is not going to work. He says, this great Babylon, it's fallen. It's standing against God and it cannot stand. Anything that stands against God will not stand. He says, you've made the nations drink the wine of the passion of immorality. Now, one commentator said concerning this nation of drink the wine of immorality. He said this, he said, the world will be intoxicated, deceived, and seduced by the Babylon of false religion headed by the Antichrist. Now, that's a good summation of this verse. It's a good summation. And the word passion is used. A passion of immorality, this passion, this desire, I want, I want, I want, instead of, I'm going to depend upon God. Let me remind you, back in the time of Nimrod, just a little bit after Nimrod's time, it was in Genesis chapter 12, God came to one man, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Abraham wasn't pursuing a great nation. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. Abraham was just dependent upon God. He wasn't trying to do this. He was dependent upon God. And these people are are worshiping this broken system. It is a system that is under God's judgment. It is a system that is flawed. Their thinking is wrong. They're following the wrong person. Their religion is, is broken. It's broken. How do you tell a world that their thinking is wrong? That they are flawed in their, in their thinking. No matter how big and, and how right they seem, it is a flawed system. I want you to see this. Turn back just one chapter, Revelation chapter 13. Here's what they were saying at this time. Revelation 13 verse 4 says they worship the dragon because he gave his authority. The dragon would be Satan. He gave his authority to the beast and they worship the beast. They worship the beast. This is the Antichrist saying, here's what they said. Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? We're definitely on the right side. This powerful man, he can do these miraculous things. Who can come against him? And the reality is he will not stand before God. They have a broken system. Their thinking is wrong. Their thinking is wrong. Can you imagine... Waking up and finding that you've been following, I don't know if you remember uh, Jim Jones or, or, or let's say Hitler. That you've been supporting Hitler all this time and you, you had no idea and your eyes are open. You realize, I've been following this guy. I've been wrong. I've been wrong. How do you tell a world that they're wrong? I don't want to make light of this, but yesterday, it's a, it's a hard thing. Yesterday, my wife and I were driving around and, and actually three different times, three different trucks, we saw, I guess it's just popular these days, these trucks with a huge uh, exhaust pipe and it's not just normal fumes coming out of those things. 
the, the first one that we saw, he was starting up, revving his engine, whatever he was doing. And we were two or three cars back, but the car right behind him was just flooded with black smoke. I mean, just black smoke consumed that car. And uh, we thought, oh, no, you know, something's on fire. You want to go up to the guy and say, your truck is broken. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. Now, what's he going to say? Oh, no, I designed it. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. But it's hard to tell them. It would be hard for us to say, your, your, your truck is broken. They think it's right. This is the way it's supposed to be. No matter, it doesn't, you know, so too bad to be the person behind me. Three different times, and it wasn't, it wasn't the same truck, three different times. There was one, I'm telling you, I thought I was going to see fire coming up because I thought that thing was just, but that's the coolest thing. How do you tell the world that they are following a broken, broken religious system? How do you do that? I've been, I was just thinking about that. That's, that's our job, isn't it? We're going to have a car show in a little uh, next week, and we're going to be meeting people and helping them to see and talking with people. How do you get them to see, you know, life is not about cars. It is about Jesus Christ. It is about God. How do you help the world see that? Let me. Here's three just suggestions. Number one, this is just Scripture. Live a righteous life. That's all we can do. Here's the way life is supposed to be. Here's the way we are to be an example, the Bible says. You are a city that's set on a hill. You are a light in this world. And, and you're to be the example of what life is to be like. And number two, you challenge their thinking. You have to help them to see. Hey, cars really make you happy. When you're sitting down or laying down at night, you can sleep. I've got this car. Boy, I'm, I'm great. As opposed to my truck. Oh, man. A couple months ago, I had one little rust spot. My, it's, it's covered with rust. Not really. But I'm thinking if my truck was the center of my life and I see it rotting right before my eyes, my life would just be, just be consumed. Challenge their life. Challenge their thinking. Hey, listen, how's that working out? Are you really happy? You can sleep? You can sleep well at night. What are you basing your life on? And then put yourself in their shoes. You can say, you can say to them, you, you know what? I used to think just like that. I used to be about my own happiness. I used to be about pursuing these things. I used to pursue this, used to pursue that. It might not be cars, but you can relate in some way because you had the same kind of broken thinking. We did. And you, then you say, you know what changed my life? I, Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ turned my life around. And, and now I, I realize I, I'm, I'm just a humble, created being. I, I'm not anything. And life is about God. and About worshiping Him. Fearing Him. Fearing Him. The third thing that we do, obviously, is just, we just pray. Because there's some things we just can't do. We can't change a heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray. Pray that they see this broken system. Pray that they see that. So, so why fear God? Why worship God? Because their system is broken. So the second angel declares that. He lets them know. He lets them know there's judgment upon their religious system. What they are worshiping is wrong. And then we have the third angel in verse 9, 
Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone... Now this is the declaration. This is the real warning here. If anyone... Because they're getting ready to take this mark of the beast... If anyone worships the beast in the image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, that mark is more than just a mark. It's more than just, oh, it's just an identification. No, you are following, you are worshiping, you are worshiping Satan here. And here's what's going to happen. That's the declaration. If you take that mark. Now, this is basically just a a logic statement, a statement of logic. This is a cause and effect. You have if... Then, if you do this, then this is what's going to happen. This is the natural consequences of what's going to take place. So, if you do this, if you take this mark, you are worshiping the beast. And verse 10 tells us there's three things that that is going to happen. He will also drink of the wine of God's wrath. You drink the, the wine that Babylon supplies, well, God's going to have wine of his own. And it's going to be the drinking the wine of the wrath of God. That's just a, an expression talking about God's anger. Now, I want you to see, notice here, that this is not just whimsical, impulsive uh, outburst of God's anger and it'll subside very quickly. No, this is a slow burning. This is a deliberate, merciless, graceless response of a righteous God to sinful people. Undeserving sinners. It is mixed, he says. The first response, if you take that mark of the beast, then God's, all of God's wrath is going to be toward you. It's not just a, a, an easy wrath, it's going to, which is mixed, he says, in full strength in the cup of his anger. Now, what is that talking about? In Bible times, in this time, they would mix, uh, they would take wine, it would be, that would be in its potency, and they would mix it with water, kind of dilute it. It would stretch a little bit longer, but they would dilute it a little bit in order to, uh, it would kind of kill the, the taste of the water. The water wouldn't be, and kind of purify the water. The water wouldn't taste very good. And, but this is essentially, in, the, in a better translation would be, unmixed. It, it is unmixed. Mixed in its full strength. Now, when I was little, maybe you did this, your mom would bring home a little thing of uh, lemon juice. Okay? Ah, mom, can I have some? No, no, you can't. You can't have this. Don't have it. You put it in the, in the refrigerator, and of course you're going to sneak and get some of that, right? And so you take one swig of that, and your lips turn inside out. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, because why? It's concentrated. It's concentrated lemon juice. And you think, oh, who can drink that? It's pretty good when it's watered down. Listen, there's no watering of God's compassion. There's no grace here. No grace. It is God's wrath in its fullest extent. Its fullest extent. Pure wrath. Men, when you spank in your children, you, you hold back. You don't do it with your full strength, do you? You don't do that. You hold back. If somebody was attacking you and you were in a fight for your life, you would use your full strength, right? This is God's full strength, is unmixed with compassion. This is undiluted vengeance upon deserving sinners. That's a harsh picture. 
But this is what's going to happen. This is the warning. Unmixed, full of strength in the cup of God's anger. Here's the second part. He says, and, and, this is the connection word, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. Fire and brimstone. That is the same elements that God used to to burn up Solomon and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone. And it's going to be in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. Now, this isn't the presence as a relational presence. It's not something that, oh, we'll be in the presence of God, which is great. No, this is going to bring shame upon already this torment. And grief, add grief, more grief to this this uh, torment because it's going to be in the presence of a righteous and holy and pure God and, and righteous and holy angels. And they're going to be watching. They're going to be seeing how you respond to this agony, this fire and brimstone. And it reminds us that, that Christians today, now not so much us, but we are in a public arena. And there's public humiliation. We take a stand publicly. And there's... Christians in other countries that are taking that stand and they're suffering public humiliation and the unsaved, they will suffer from public humiliation in the presence of God forever. And in number three, there's another connecting word in verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they will not rest day and night. Those who worship the beast, there's no, there's no ending to this torment. It just keeps going on and, and on and on. Christ told us that. He talked about this unquenching fire, this fire of all eternity that will not stop. One commentary said that this torment of the lost in hell lasts just as long as the blessings of the saved in heaven. Blessings of the redeemed in heaven are going to be just as long as the eternal torment of those who are in hell. And God's holiness demands this. He demands that they suffer for all eternity. They were made eternal beings and they will suffer in eternity. And rightfully so. Man can never fully pay his debt to God. He cannot do it. He cannot do it. And man gets what he deserves. He gets what he deserves. There's no mercy here. What we see here basically is just the, the consequences of, of our actions. The consequences of our actions. Folks, there's a reaping, sowing principle. We reap what we sow. And Paul warns about that in this passage that Dave read for us earlier in Galatians chapter 6. Let me just remind us. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't play around here, he says. God is serious about this. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And the one who sows to the flesh will with the flesh reap corruption. You want to drink of the wine of Babylon, you're going to suffer corruption. Or you're going to suffer condemnation of that. You just will. But those who sow to the Spirit, with with the Spirit, reap eternal life. There's a reaping, sowing principle, folks. While we're here on this earth, God will not be mocked. He is not a God that takes sin lightly. 
Now, I know what we think. Oh, he hasn't done anything about sin so far. He's not going to do anything. He's, he's just kind of apathetic towards sin. But don't be deceived, folks. Don't be deceived. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. They will be punished. He is, he is being patient and he is being gracious. And they are taking advantage of that patience and that graciousness of God. And I say, where do we come in with this? Here's, look at verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints. Here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. He's saying, this is what they're going to have to go through. This group of people, these earth dwellers that have rejected God and are following this religious system and these saints, these saints are there trying to proclaim this gospel, proclaim this message, and at the same time being publicly ridiculed. And what they're going through is this persecution, and they have to persevere. And what we know is that their faith will not fail. They will persevere. They will persevere through this. And it says in verse 13, And I heard with a voice from heaven, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead. It'd be better to be dead than to go through this time period, even as a saint. Even as a saint. Because the, the rejection of the world, they're just hotly pursuing worship of Satan who died in the Lord. Blessed are the dead who died in the Lord. Yes, he says. Here's, here's it. So that they may rest. They can rest now. From their labor. Their labor? Yes. Can you imagine being a saint during that tribulation period? During that time? And trying to convince a world to not follow Satan? Not take the mark of the beast? I've got to eat. I've got to have that mark. No, don't do it. You'll be worshiping Satan if you do. He said, it's better off to be dead. It'd be the hardest time of all to be a saint. And the hardest, hardest of places so that they will rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Those righteous deeds, the things that they tried to do, the perseverance that they they were under, it'll follow them. It'll be with them. Now, folks, this directly applies to us. No, we're not in the tribulation period. We're not in in that seven-year period of time yet. But the reaping-sowing principle still applies. Folks, if, if people are sowing to the flesh, they're going to reap that. We have good news for the world that God is a forgiving God. He is a gracious God. And, and people need to be warned. People are serving a broken system. They're serving the wrong God. They need to turn. And there's also eternal punishment. That's not a popular message. It's not a popular message for us to give to the world. How do you convince a world that they're wrong? When all of the evidence points to the contrary, they think they're right. And here's what's the amazing part for me. That God uses us. Now these angels, you know, they're, they're up in the sky and they're proclaiming this message. People are still rejecting that. But in our day, you know, God is just using us. We are the ones carrying that message today. 
We have this gracious message that, that we need to give to the world, this warning to the world. He's entrusted that to people. Just us. It's just us, folks. This should be a challenge to us. That's not an easy task. It's not an easy task at all. It's hard. And But yet, there's still a need. And there's a gracious God who's given an opportunity. His judgment is going to come. There's doom to be, to be threatened with. We have to know that. The world needs to know that. Folks, this should motivate us. Motivate us as Christians. Let's go to the Lord as... In prayer, Father, I thank you for just just the simple truth of what's going to happen. Lord, we thank you for showing us your heart, this heart of a gracious God, that in spite of the deception that's going on from Satan on earth, in spite of them hotly pursuing worship of, of Satan, you are still gracious, still kind. And what's so amazing to me is that You still only have one changing agent, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel to change a life. Lord, it's the same message that we have today. May we go forth and proclaim that word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.